0: This day in
1: 1994, Oasis released their first album, Definitely Maybe. It goes on to sell a million copies in the US, spearheading a second British invasion. But for now, the band is unknown outside the UK. For some, they offered a refreshing alternative to the zeitgeist grunge, and they were proud of their UK heritage and shamelessly borrowed ideas and sometimes whole melodies from bands like The Beatles, The Kinks, and T-Rex and I guess uh, they would have been big when you were uh, reporting in the UK Mark. Uh, we forget eh, how big they oh, were.
2: That was one of the things I discovered on getting to the UK was I was there roughly about the same time about 94 and they were just massive, massive and, and also, it was that whole time, it was that cool Britannia. I talked b- yes. about, you know, Tony Blair had come into power and all these people invited Blur and Oasis, all invited to Number 10. It was that whole new sort of, you know, groovy thing going on. And then, um, and it was great because over the next few years, you watched these brothers implode. Yeah. You know, fantastic music it,
1: wor- it was a working class, thing, wasn't it? It was working oh, yeah. class. Right.
2: Yeah. Very, very, very much so, you know. And it was just, uh, but but the music, they were just, they were an extraordinary band.
1: Oasis fan there, Joe, or did, did it go through
3: a phase, or not really mm-hmm. bypassed? No, pretty much skated on yeah. past without intersecting <gasps> yeah. in a big way. But no. um, but yeah, I, I remember the cool Britannia and you know the mag covers and the iconography around that and how. Big a deal that
1: was yeah. at that time. 24 to 5, the panel, RNZ National. Wonderful to have you coming in. By the way, at the end of the show, we're talking about uh, acorns. Uh, 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 an interesting article caught my attention in the Otago Daily Times. You can eat acorns. I did not know you could eat acorns. Mm. I was shocked and I was stunned and I still can't believe it. I'm looking forward to talking to the expert. Have you eaten an acorn? I want to know. Text me at one. 21- Uh, And I'll believe it uh, when we have our expert on. But to this first. Major parties have been grappling with allegations of bullying and rogue behaviour, with one expert pointing out that the political sphere actually lags far behind the corporate world on basic people management and writes we expect professionals to be fully trained and qualified yet there is more regulation and training of builders and hairdressers than there are of our politicians and their staff, writes Jennifer Lees-Marshman Meanwhile, yesterday evening exiled MP Gaurav Sharma posted a near 5,000 word post about what he alleged was poor performance of his former staff and the way his complaints were handled by Parliamentary Service and the Labour Party. So with us is uh, Jennifer Lee's uh, Marshman, an associate professor at the University of Auckland, who specialises in political marketing. Welcome to the panel.
4: Hi, good to be here. Uh,
1: pretty strong words there, Jennifer. Um, more training and regulations of builders and hairdressers than politicians.
4: Yeah, but that's what the reality is. So I, when I first started looking into this area, about I don't know, five years ago. I was really shocked to find that there was this major gap in both research and then teaching or training of our politicians and their staff so it's no wonder really that we get these problems because they're left to learn on the job and while some of them of course do learn and do you know do really well at it often that talent and experience and expertise is lost when the party gets out of power. They just change jobs and move on.
1: One thing that stood out for me reading that, and it's a fascinating article in, where is it, Newsroom, that it's hard to get the right fit for the roles in parliamentary staff. And also there's kind of no career pathway as well.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So once imposed, you know, even if they're brilliant, it's, it's hard to know where they go from yeah. there. The problem is they're kind of formally or legally employed by other areas of government, by public servants who at the same time aren't allowed to get involved in politics. So it's very difficult, say, for the Department of Internal Affairs or parliamentary services to create training about politics when they themselves are not allowed to get involved in politics. And, you know, basically their employer, if they a political staff their employer is an MP, and if they're an MP, their employer is a party leader, but there's, you know, very little sense of what the roles are. They're not also recruited in the, the same way that we are for, for other roles, right, obviously, because we vote them in, MPs, and yeah. then they select their staff. Often based on who they know who volunteered in the campaign, but you know, in order to reward their political loyalty. But that doesn't mean they're actually checking that the, the skill set matches the job, and voters don't check that the MPs have the skills they need to do the job.
1: It really stood out for you, I understand, when you interviewed senior political yes. advisors in Canberra and they slammed the various political HR, uh, the lack of it.
4: Yeah, I mean, in both Australia and New Zealand, because I was interviewed Mike Monroe, who was Derns chief of staff, and as well as Scott Morrison's chief of staff, the former Australian Prime Minister, you know, and they both said, and other staff too. Um, but then the most senior said that, you know, this is a real gap. There's no training manual. There's there's very little research on it. I also spoke to people in, you know, the Australian Labour Party who said the problem is there's no professional college. Uh-huh. And there's no, there's no you know, Labour... On- the other thing is that this is the learning that would normally happen, that you know, from one person to the next, from one generation to the next, then in terms of a handover in other spheres of, of organisations, doesn't happen here because, you know, the National Party, Keys office, wasn't going to help... Um, you know, well, Bill English's office wasn't going to help our done when she came into power because they're always competing with each other. So it's not in their interest to pass on knowledge and expertise and understanding of how the job works. So it's a real it's a real problem. To say ministers, MPs, and their staff are left to learn on the job, and it's it's pretty tough.
3: What do you think the solution is, though, Jennifer? I mean, I guess it's tempting to say, uh, should we be leaving? Um, government up to people who are selected just by merely by votes? Should we be appointing people who are more suitable, have the suitable skills?
4: Well, we can't do anything other than that, otherwise we'd have to get rid of democracy. And obviously that's not a very good idea for all sorts of reasons. But what we can do is do more proper research into you know, uh, what is best practice? What what have they learnt on the job before they leave or when they leave, do an exit interview? I remember speaking, I remember speaking with Mike Monroe. our Derns First Chief of Staff, about this, and he said, really, we should do an exit interview of every political advisor and MP and minister who leaves their post, and saying, what have you learnt? You know, based on your experience now, what you know now, what should people avoid, what should they do, what worked well, and then use that to then inform the next generation coming in. And you really need universities to, to play a role in that, in doing that objective research. Now, there is some um, training at the moment that some people keep trying to do something about it, but often it's sort of general leadership development, that training from the business management literature, which is based on what it's like in business—it's not really um, within the political context, or it's on the rules. And if people have told me, you need people who know the rules but also know how to get around with them—you um, know, legally and ethically—but in order to get things done, because political management is, is very complicated. No.
3: Do you think the political sort of the, the the political time frame sort of actively discourages that, Jennifer? I mean, people are just dealing in this short term, where they're looking immediately rather than for systemic change.
4: Absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt that the three-year term in New Zealand and Australia makes it harder. But to be fair, this isn't just a, an Australian-New Zealand problem. It also occurs in, in the UK, in Canada, where they have five-year terms, and of course in the US, where the president comes in for just four years. It's, it's a problem as well that they also we expect them to hit the ground running, so they're not allowed to say, I don't know what I'm doing. So I remember when I was trying to try, trying to get funding to to do some research on this, and they said, well, you need to get you know the government to admit that they need training. And I said, they can't. You know, I don't can't say yes, we need we need training. I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. Look, Christopher Luxon can't say that. I mean, he has said that politics is different to business, and you've still got to learn a lot. But you know, they can't admit this because they've got to pretend they know what they're doing and they
2: can sort things out. Huh, and right, yeah. Things. Professor, when you look at this situation now, Gaurav Sharma the thing he put out last night talked about 66 issues he had with one staff member. Now, yeah. n- not trying to pick on him, but, I mean, you can, you can sort of... Doesn't that sort of ring alarm bells?
4: Well, in what, in what respect? Well, that, you that, that, some, or
2: this? Or that you've got 60... If someone identifies 66 issues, there's... The working relationship, whoever was at fault, it seems pretty sort of perilous, doesn't it? I mean, 66 issues with one person.
4: Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I can well imagine these issues would um, come up. I mean, I can't obviously comment even remotely on this specific mm. incident but these issues will come up because people will be, staff will be putting in jobs like this with perhaps little experience of doing this kind of work. Often the MPs are away if they're in the local electorate office so they're not guided well there's nobody to guide them. There aren't the training programs, there aren't the networks. Eventually they'll find their feet and they'll learn and they'll figure out what to do but it takes time. Um, and the other thing is if something goes wrong, I mean they, they, the MPs don't legally employ them so it creates all sorts of uh, complicated issues. Now, I think they've been trying to address this. I mean, there was, you know, to be fair to the Labour Party, I think they've been trying to address this in some way, but it's just very, very complicated. I want
1: to put a, uh, I want to put a uh, text to you, Jennifer. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. This is from Matt, who says. Airline pilots have to go through psychological evaluation because they potentially have hundreds of lives on their hands. Our leaders and MPs don't go through such evaluation yet have a country in their hands and millions of lives. We have no idea who most of these people are other than a party marketed image.
4: Yes, and and, and he's right. I mean, that's a very wise comment, and that's why I'm so concerned about this, because, you know, we're not helping ourselves by not training the people who are in charge of us. You know, we wouldn't allow it in any other industry, and it's really strange that this has been allowed to be like this for so long. And the problem is that when we get the stories in, in the media and it prompts these kind of discussions, you know, it, it's a problem for the Labour Party or the National Party or the Liberal Party in Australia or whatever. Whereas actually, it's just a cross-party, cross-country issue. No. You know, this isn't, there's Labour hasn't done anything wrong. They're, they're doing their best, just as other parties in power are
1: it's yeah, I've got helpful. to final well, comment. I've joke. got to
3: agree with you there, um, because you know, with these stories with Sharma or Uffendale or, or the you know too many to list, they're treated as individual problems. And yep. you know, we have had so many problems along those lines from every single party, and it's almost always with quite a new politician. And y- you have to say that looks like a systemic problem as well
1: Jennifer Kiota thank you very much for your time it's very interesting topic there Jennifer Lees-Marshman who specialises in uh, political marketing that's an interesting idea from Matt actually um, airline pilots go through some sort of psychological evaluation do politicians have to undergo a similar type of process perhaps pilots uh, aren't elected
2: though that's, no I mean very, this, that's the, the big nonetheless problem nonetheless
1: though nonetheless though Mark you've got a background psychological schooling to get through if you want to b- become part of the parliamentary process Surely, anyway, um, acorns flooding through acorn uh, co- acorn flour uh, does it exist acorn coffee um, acorn it was a staple food in medieval Europe. We discussed that uh, very soon, but this you 're driving through the countryside, ever wondered, gosh there 's quite a few radiator pines in New Zealand outside the forestries, of course. Well, a new study has found that radiata pines are pervasively invading the country, and the study has suggested a solution to help with managing invasion. Radiata pine is also the largest contributor to New Zealand's forestry industry. Exports account for around 3% of GDP. Now, the study was called The Right Tree in the Right Place, a major economic tree poses major eco- ecological threats. So, the research was led by Dr. Peter Bellingham of Manaki Land Landcare Research. Dr. Bellingham, kia ora. kia ora. nice to talk with you. Yeah, good to have you on. So, the backdrop to this was to find out whether or not radiata pine was more than just a minor invasive species.
5: Indeed. We felt that it was time for an update on that view. That view was um, promulgated in the, I guess, the late 1980s at the time of a uh, a book that was published about uh, the uh, non-native trees and shrubs and herbs of New Zealand, of which Radiata is one. And you're quite right to highlight its major uh, economic value to the country. At that time, the, uh, the assessment was that it was a minor escape around plantations. I suppose one of the things that motivated me was discussions with land managers in places like Te Tai Tokero, um, where they are spending um, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars controlling the invasion. And it made us think as a group of authors, some of whom have worked for quite some time in these ecosystems, just where and how does it invade? And it was really time for an update.
1: My question, and I guess the big issue was whether radiata pine should be a viable part of the emissions trading scheme or cut down and replaced by natives?
5: Uh, I think we need a sense of perspective on that. You've already highlighted its major economic uh, values to the country. It's hard to imagine the uh, construction industry um, without radiata yeah. pine. So, uh, our point was not to be alarmist, but simply to draw attention to the fact that some of our native ecosystems are particularly vulnerable to its invasion. The very factors that make it such a successful tree in sequestering carbon. Very rapid growth, Uh, it can achieve the uh, amount of carbon that a native forest would take much longer to attain in in short order. But there is a trade-off. It does invade some ecosystems, and some of those contain very rare plants. We also need to see the picture in the round, that of course that is one component of what could offset carbon, but naturally regenerating or planted native forests... um, may pose less risk around some of the ecosystems that are particularly at risk.
2: OK, Mark, let's bring Mark in. Yeah, well, uh, the, the, the pine trees, I mean, aren't people pulling them all out now? I mean, I was watching something the other night of someone where there'd been all this forestation, they'd planted pines, and then they're ripping them all out and trying to bring it back again. Did we, did we make some horrendous mistake?
5: Yes, we've certainly made some horrendous mistakes in the past and I suppose the chief offender among the horrendous mistakes of the past is lodgepole pine. Um, That's pinus contorta, the one that invades, for example, the high country around Mount Ruapehu and many of the uh, areas around, say, Twizel and the Mackenzie Basin. That's by and large an area too cold for radiata and um, there hasn't been much planted in the high country. Radiata is uh, certainly frost-tolerant. Uh, a trip to cawing aurora will certainly tell you that. Um, but we need to understand, uh, does it germinate well in frosted areas? But a lot of the concern about places that are really heavily invaded by radiata include things like coastal dunes, um, sea cliffs, um, a lot of the Marlborough sounds, for example. There are escapes out of old places. Yeah,
1: nations. lots around there. Lots around there, Joe.
3: Well... Um, you'd probably know better than me, Dr. Bellingham, but I believe that pine needles are naturally allopathic, aren't they? So they inhibit the germination of seeds.
5: Again, you know, it, one doesn't want to say anything like that too uncritically because, you know, if you drive through Roar, um, through the old growth plantations, you will see an understory of native tree ferns and so forth. It's likely to favour some species and not others. I don't think we know enough to know about what old plantations that might be left, say if we leave them as long-term carbon sinks, um, how they will compare with naturally regenerated native forests. I think we could expect a transition over time. But for all that time that those pines are in the canopy, they're out there producing seeds that can be dispersed much further than we'd previously appreciated. No,
1: but before you go, Peter, um, you're proposing a levy. Who would pay for it?
5: Yeah, well, again, I think that levy would be um, in proportion to the value of the adjacent lands. If, for example, you are planting a um, plantation alongside areas that we know are now have a very high likelihood of invasion, geothermal sites, say, in the central North Island, gumlands up in Te Tai dunes anywhere in the country, these might be particular places to attract a levy because they are the areas where councils like Northland and Marlborough spending the money getting rid
1: of them. No. Nice to have you on the programme, Dr. Bellingham. Kia ora. That's um, Dr. Peter Bellingham uh, from Landcare Research on new study finding that radiata pines are pervasively invading the country, proposing some sort of levy to help control them. Eight away from five, we've got Joe McCarroll here, we've got Mark Sainsbury here, and lovely to have you company. Thank you so much for your feedback this afternoon. I wanted to get to this. I'm very excited, very excited to talk about this. This time last year, hours of entertainment collecting acorns with my son. Collecting them, putting them in a bucket, tipping them out again, putting them back in. The little, little treasures. I did not realise till today we could actually eat them. Apparently, pop them in Anzac biscuits, a fruit loaf, or just roast them up. They're everywhere in Aotearoa. Not many realise... They edible. With us is acorn enthusiast and former president of the New Zealand Tree Crops Association, scientist Eric Cairns. Welcome, Eric.
0: Right, thank you. What a what an introduction.
1: <laughs> it's lovely to have you on. But let's get straight to it. Are you quite sure I can eat acorns?
0: You absolutely can, but you do need to treat them first. Because the tannins, the bitter tannins, can be quite toxic, and for I think for humans you wouldn't you wouldn't eat very many because most of us can taste bitter compounds. But acorns are known to cause organ damage to livestock, um, particularly when they don't have access to other types of food. So when the when uh, acorns are fresh off the tree and the you know, drought conditions, the, the livestock uh, can, can suffer and die and as the veterinarians will, will tell you. Uh. But, but look, humans have been eating these things since uh, before the last ice age is finished oh. and uh, that has been there as part of our paleo diet and a very large number of uh, cultures in the northern hemisphere uh, helped spread these oaks around and as recently as the early 1900s or mid-1900s, they were a major part of the diet for Native Americans, and they are still part of diet and Korea and turkey. And, Good grief. You know, okay, so, so I completely
1: missed not the grief. vote on this one. I did not know that we, oh, the acorns, Joe, were such a part of our diet.
3: I'm surprised, Wallace. I mean, did you not realise they are effectively just a kind of fruit? A I nut. thought
1: they were a toxic little thing that you can collect with the toddler. Well that you can't eat. I think animals make I, the point. They, yeah. need,
3: they need a bit of prep. Yeah. You don't just you know, nibble on them as Mark, you go. did you know?
2: Well balan- balanophagy What are you talking about? Bellanophagy is the eating of acorns. B A L A N O P H A G Y Eric, is this just a
1: Sainz-O oh, well,
0: yeah, thing? Pronunciation that I thought it was, but anyhow, absolutely, there is a huge number of cultures who have not only eaten the acorns, but the oak timber has formed very much of their culture and their lifestyle and the way they built. You know, Vikings, Celtic people go back not very many thousand years and it was the oaks that was the you know the frame or quote the the word the frame of civilization there's a lovely book out there by William Bryant Logan called the oak the frame of civilization and he's a journalist but very readable and tells you all about the history of of, uh, and, um, and human evolution with it
3: Eric you're part of tree crops aren't you I am, yeah, so, I am,
0: and plant forestry,
3: yes. Sir. Yeah, well, Tree Crops is a brilliant um, organisation, really like it, love it at Gardener. we we have a lot to do with you guys, but um, I know they promote all the different things you can grow and often things you can grow to eat, and I think that's what's important here, because I think there are, I mean, the p- estimates vary, but there's hundreds of thousands of different plants in the world, you know, some estimates are about 400,000, and it's said that up to, you know, a th- half or two-thirds might be edible with the right preparation. And actually, we eat mainly from about 20 different plant species. And that's I think... that's
0: very th- narrow, isn't
3: yeah, it? Yeah, more right. than two-thirds of... So
1: widen your horizon, Sarah. Someone says, um, in the war years due to lack of coffee beans, ersatz coffee was made from acorns. And Sue says acorns were ground in the UK during the Second World War when there was a flower shortage. So, Eric, can you... I've- how do I prepare an acorn so I can have it with a, um, a, a nice little beer after work?
0: <laughs> Probably the easiest thing for you to do is to buy acorn flour from a Korean uh, delicatessen or, or, or supermarket because it is, you know, there is, what I'm just reading here, 14,000 tonnes of acorn flour consumed in South Korea each year and they do export it around. Um, and they make a, an acorn jelly. Outside. Well, the, the thing is, I like my nuts.
1: Um,
0: and you like the nuts? Well, you probably need a... Okay, you... you see? Very often the acorns um, uh, are ground into a flour for other uses, use as a flower substitute. You would need a very sweet acorn to yes. eat, eat them direct. And there are, they are around. They're hard to find in New Zealand, but... Um, some of the the cork oak and home oak uh, selections are uh, oh, not Bitter, shall we say, not not uh, astringent. Uh, I, I understand that in Spain they, they serve roasted acorns as street food.
2: No, I could handle that. Ooh.
0: They have Yeah. A, well, what mark? Uh, no. oh, yeah. Bologna, well, chestnuts.
2: Which... I hate chestnuts. So I just I'm, all I'm thinking well, is acorns might be the same. not
0: quite as sweet as a chestnut, but <laughs> be
2: similar. Hey, and the Greeks the Greeks were into acorns, weren't they as well? that big time
0: absolutely absolutely well look until shall we say uh, you know arable farming really took over in certain parts of the world you know what 7000 years ago but in sort of displaced you know the, perhaps the higher population densities and so on um, they did have famines of course but but there were quite large populations, according to the reading I've done, quite wonderful. large populations Eric, could, could survive. on. We're,
1: we're all acorned out this afternoon. It's the end of the show. Very good to have you <laughs> on. We're all acorned out today. Joe McCarroll, Mark Sainsbury, thank you for being with me today. It's been wonderful. I'm Wallace Chapman. Back tomorrow, 3.45. Lisa Owen with Checkpoint right next.